Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, October 21st, Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. Uh, there are a few anniversaries, good ones this weekend actually. Uh, on October 21st in the year 1600, Tokugawa Ieyasu's army defeated the Western Army of Ishida Mitsunari at the Battle of Sekigahara. This victory left Ieyasu in virtually uncontested control of Japan, and it is generally marked as the beginning of the Tokugawa Shogunate, even though... Ieyasu wasn't officially appointed shogun until 1603. Uh, on October 21st, 1805, though outnumbered, a British Royal Navy fleet under Horatio Nelson, who was killed in action, decisively defeats a com defeated a combined Franco-Spanish fleet at the Battle of Trafalgar near Cape Trafalgar in southern Spain, one of the most famous military, at least naval, battles in history. Britain had already established naval supremacy over France years earlier through engagements like the Battle of the Nile in 1798, uh, but Trafalgar confirmed that naval supremacy, and it was the last major naval engagement of the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon's plan to build a grand new navy that would finally defeat Britons at sea was, of course, derailed by his defeat on land a few years later. On October 22nd, 1884, the International Meridian Conference, which, yes, was a real thing, designated the line of longitude running through the Royal Observatory at Greenwich as the International Prime Meridian. Previously, most major seafaring countries, at least, uh, had uh, designated their own separate prime meridians that often ran through their capital cities. Germany had a Berlin meridian, France had the Paris meridian, etc., etc. But such was the ubiquity of British mapmaking that the UK Greenwich prime meridian had become the international standard by default, even before this conference made it official. And nowadays, the international prime meridian is the IERS reference meridian, which still runs through Greenwich, but is actually around. 100 meters east of the previous one. Uh, don't ask me why. Uh, on to the news. In the Middle East, in Israel, Palestine, there are, are unsurprisingly several items to cover here. Uh, according to Gaza health authorities, Israeli airstrikes killed at least 80 people overnight, many of them in the especially hard-hit town of Deir Balah in central Gaza. Another Israeli attack on Gaza's Jab Jabalia re refugee camp reportedly killed at least 30 people late Sunday, and overall the bombing campaign seemed to be intensifying overnight Sunday into Monday. Uh, so basically, as I was writing this, if that's even possible uh, for there to be an intensification here. Uh, these killings bring the death toll over two-plus weeks of bombing uh, to well over 4,600. According to the United Nations, at least 29 of whose staffers are among the dead, the pace of the killing is so fast that many bodies have been buried in mass graves, which will make identifying them down the road potentially impossible. There is no way to preserve those bodies because the Israeli siege has left Gaza without the electricity needed to power refrigerated storage units. Uh, Hamas fighters reportedly killed one Israeli soldier and wounded three others during a ground operation in Gaza on Sunday. The Israeli military has been making raids into Gaza ahead of its expected ground invasion, ostensibly to recover hostages, though I suspect they're at least as concerned with scouting and potentially destroying militant defensive positions. Uh, Israeli officials now estimate that militants are holding more than 200 people hostage inside Gaza, though some of them may have been killed in airstrikes. Uh, the question of whether the ground invasion is coming soon or even coming at all loomed through the weekend without much clarification. I will note that the Israeli military on Saturday reportedly dropped leaflets over northern Gaza, uh, warning that anyone who hasn't obeyed its previous demand for civilians to evacuate that area will essentially be considered an enemy combatant, uh, I guess, from this point forward. Uh, that 
evacuation order thus becomes the military's justification for high casualty numbers. Uh, they, they'll say, look, we told these people to leave, uh, so if they stay, they must be ready to fight. Uh, I do wonder if that logic will apply to hospital patients, for example, who can't evacuate. Pressure from the hostages' families and internationally may be one reason why Israeli officials have not begun the invasion yet, though there's also pressure on Hamas to release those people, and if it doesn't do so uh, soon, then the pressure to start the invasion is probably going to win out uh, over the pressure to save as many hostages as possible. Uh Interestingly, Hamas is claiming that it tried to release two Israeli hostages on Friday alongside the two U.S. hostages it freed, but these were, that he says that Israeli officials refused to accept them. Uh, that's a quote, I think. Uh, the Israeli government calls that assertion false propaganda, and I do have to say uh, it's a little hard to believe that the Israelis would just refuse to take hostages back without having any additional detail uh, about why or what the possible rationale could have been. Uh, And anyway, if Hamas wanted to release these people, uh, it could presumably just hand them over to the Red Cross without any Israeli input anyway. Uh, So it's all a little bit hard to, to, to buy, frankly. In addition to killing more people in Gaza, the Israeli military had a busy weekend striking targets all over the region. We'll get to those in a bit, but this would be the right place to mention the Sunday airstrike that destroyed a mosque in the West Bank city of Jenin, killing at least two people. According to Israeli officials, the mosque was being used as a Hamas Palestinian Islamic Jihad headquarters, and the airstrike somehow prevented an imminent attack. Uh, humanitarian aid did finally get into Gaza over the weekend, and as you probably could have predicted, it was pretty underwhelming. A first shipment of 20 trucks passed through the uh, Rafa checkpoint from Sinai on Saturday, and a surprise second shipment, this time on 14 trucks, entered on Sunday. For reference, the UN says it needs to bring about 100 trucks into Gaza per day to meet basic humanitarian needs, so 34 over two days is just slightly inadequate. Uh, As expected, the aid doesn't include fuel, which means it can't be trucked much further into Gaza than the checkpoint itself, uh, and it means that Gaza's power plant will remain inoperative while fuel continues to run out for the generators providing power to, for example, hospitals. Uh, The Israeli military also had a little oopsie on Sunday and shelled a guard post on the Egyptian side of Rafah, causing minor injuries to several Egyptian border guards. I'm sure uh, this was an honest mistake. Uh, The Egyptian government's hastily organized summit for peace on Saturday doesn't appear to have made much progress toward peace, sadly. Uh, It mostly provided a forum for angry speeches by Arab representatives who are angry at Israel and Western representatives who are angry at Hamas, with little common ground on anything beyond the unconscious controversial need for humanitarian aid. Again, I think the main aim from the Egyptian government's perspective here was to show its angry populace, and we'll get to that in a minute too, uh, that it's trying to do something about Gaza. Uh, There couldn't have been much expectation uh, that the summit would actually achieve anything. Uh, Amid an abundance of particularly empty rhetoric about protecting Palestinian civilians, the Biden administration spent the weekend moving U.S. military assets around and warning of a wider conflict if its forces in the Middle East continue to come under attack. Again, we'll get to that. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin took those warnings to the Sunday talk show circuit, which suggests their audience may have been more domestic than international. And meanwhile, the Pentagon decided to shift the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower and its carrier 
airstrike group to the Middle East instead of the Eastern Mediterranean as, again, a show of force. Uh, Moving on to Syria, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights is claiming that Syrian military shelling killed six children in a rebel-held part of Idlib province on Sunday. Uh, According to the uh, observatory, rebel factions in that area attacked nearby military positions in response, but there's no word as to how that uh, transpired. Uh, The Israeli military reportedly attacked the airports in Damascus and Aleppo again on Sunday for the second time since the start of the Gaza War. The airstrikes killed at least one person in Damascus and reportedly forced the closure of both facilities. Israeli officials regard both airports as potential conduits for Iranian weapons being sent to Hezbollah and other militant groups. Uh, In Iraq... Iraqi military forces and Kurdish Peshmerga fighters reportedly battled over control of three military outposts in Iraq's Erbil province on Sunday, with at least three people dying as a result. Uh, The identities of the dead are unknown, as is the specific precursor to the violence. The Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, apparently announced a few days ago that it was quitting the three outposts, and that has set off a dispute over whether they should be taken over by Iraqi federal security forces or Kurdistan regional government security forces. Elsewhere, AFP reports that Iraq's Ain al-Assad airbase was the target of a drone strike on Saturday, though the attempted attack was ineffectual. That facility houses U.S. military personnel, and this incident is part of the reason for the aforementioned Sunday show bluster from Blinken and Austin. There is no indication as to responsibility, but at least one of Iraq's many Iran-supported militias was presumably involved. Uh, In Lebanon, uh, low-level violence continued to engulf the Israeli-Lebanese border throughout the weekend. Uh, Saturday saw Israeli airstrikes targeting Hezbollah positions in southern Lebanon and at least one incident of cross-border shelling. At least six Hezbollah fighters were reportedly killed and one Israeli soldier seriously wounded. According to the New York Times, the Biden administration has been pressuring the Israeli government against making a large preemptive attack against Hezbollah that would almost certainly escalate this situation into a full-blown war. The fear is that the Israeli military would lose a two-front war and or that such a conflict would inevitably bring the U.S. and Iran into the fight directly. Uh, In Egypt, uh, uh, I mentioned the angry Egyptian populace earlier, and according to Al Jazeera, part of that anger is being directed at their own government. Apparently, uh, it has been that government has been recording st- or, or sorry has been organizing uh, staged protests uh, that attempt to combine support for Palestinians in Gaza with support for Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi, which are two tastes that do not necessarily go great together. Uh, the degree of cynicism involved in this exercise has apparently offended Egyptians who are actually angry about what's happening in Gaza, but are not being paid to channel that anger into a political show for Sisi's benefit. Uh, Those folks are actually finding themselves under attack from Egyptian security forces any time they try to demonstrate. Uh, It would be a real trick if Sisi manages to turn the Gaza war into a large-scale protest movement directed at his own government. 
In Iran, Armita Jerevan, the teenage girl who fell into a coma earlier this month after an alleged confrontation with Iranian morality police in Tehran, is brain dead, according to Iranian state media. Given the similarities between her case and what happened last year to Masa Amini, another young woman who suspiciously died after being accosted by morality police over an offense against Iran's hijab laws, the possibility of renewed protests over her death cannot be ruled out. This would come at an inopportune time, rather, for the Iranian government, which is currently engaged in a back and forth with with Israel and the U.S. uh, via its clients in Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen, in addition to the main event, of course, in Gaza. Renewed domestic unrest would presumably distract from that effort, and that could mean a more sudden and even more violent crackdown uh, than the Masa Amini protests received. Uh, Moving on to Asia and the Philippines, Philippine and Chinese vessels collided twice on Sunday near the disputed Second Thomas Shoal in the South China Sea's Spratly Island group. The Philippine military was once again attempting to resupply its makeshift outpost in the shoal when the resupply vessel and another vessel escorting it collided with a Chinese Coast Guard cutter and a second vessel that Philippine officials described as part of the Chinese maritime militia and Chinese officials described as a fishing boat. Neither collision seems to have been particularly catastrophic, but this does represent another escalation in the ongoing duel over the shoal. Uh, In South Korea, the South Korean military hosted joint air exercises involving its U.S. and Japanese counterparts on Sunday that marked the first time all three of those militaries had played together. Uh, So that's nice, uh, I guess. Uh, The diplomatic reconciliation between South Korea and Japan, which was, of course, made possible by South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol's offer to forget that whole nasty World War II reparations business, has been subsumed by other events, but maybe one of the more significant under-the-radar developments and international affairs this year. Uh, This drill is, of course, another example of that reconciliation. On to Africa. In Mali, where UN peacekeepers withdrew from their former outpost in Tessalit in northern Mali's Kidal region on Saturday, the UN turned that facility over to the Malian army and later said the withdrawal was conducted in haste due to threats to the peacekeepers. The UN's withdrawal from Kidal is viewed as especially dangerous because that region is the main stomping ground for the Coalition of Azawad Movements, or CMA, Rebel Alliance, and CMA leaders are opposed to the Malian military taking over former UN positions. In Somalia, an Ashabab car bombing killed at least six people and wounded at least nine more on Sunday at a military facility in Somalia's lower Shabela region. Four of the dead and five of the wounded were soldiers. Uh, This facility is located just outside Mogadishu. On to Europe. In Ukraine, an apparent Russian Russian missile strike hit a mail depot in Ukraine's Kharkiv city late Saturday, killing at least six people and wounding another 17. Ukrainian officials claimed on Sunday that the previous 24 hours had involved the most intense Russian bombardment of Ukraine's Kherson Oblast to date, while Russian forces also appear to be redoubling their previously weakening efforts to capture the city of Avdivka in Ukraine's Donetsk Oblast. Uh, On to Switzerland, where exit polling suggests that the far-right Swiss People's Party, or uh, SVP, did quite well in Switzerland's federal election on Sunday. The survey from Swiss public broadcaster SSR had SVP, I love these acronyms, at 29% of the vote, which would be 3.5% better than it did in the 2019 election. The Green Party, which did comparatively well in 2019, appears to have collapsed this time around, dropping from a bit over 13% to less than 10% support.
Uh, on to the Americas in Argentina, where Argentine voters also headed to the polls on Sunday and appear to have gone against polling in the first round of that country's presidential election. Far-right candidate Javier Malay, who won August's primary election and led said polling ahead of the general, has finished second with around 30% of the vote behind the Peronist Renewal Front Sergio Massa at around 36%. Uh, Massa is in no danger of winning an outright first-round victory, which means they will head to a runoff on November 19th. Looking at how this vote shook out, uh, it seems like Millet should be considered the favorite in the head-to-head matchup, assuming that he can consolidate the 24-ish percent who back mainstream conservative Patricia Bullrich. Uh, had it been Bullrich, and I'm probably I'm probably mangling that, I'm sorry, uh, but it, had it been her who advanced to the runoff, as some polling suggested was possible, she might have been able to take enough support from Massa's voters to win uh, that runoff. Uh, in this case, uh, it's more likely, it seems, that her voters will gravitate toward Millet than toward Massa. Uh, and finally, in the United States, uh, at uh, Forever Wars, on Friday, back on Friday, Spencer Ackerman, a uh, friend of the newsletter, friend of the uh, show, American Prestige, uh, we like him a lot, offered his take on Joe Biden's big Israel-Ukraine speech the previous evening. Uh, I'll read you a couple of paragraphs of his piece. In frightening ways, people I spoke to yesterday drove home to me how close we are to a regional war. Lebanon already hangs by a thread beset by an economic crisis the World Bank calls, quote, likely to rank in the top 10, possibly top three most severe crisis episodes since the mid- globally since the mid-19th century, end quote. Its foreign minister, fearful of where escalating exchanges between Hezbollah and the IDF will lead, went on CNN Friday to ask Israel to declare a 48-hour ceasefire. My former Guardian colleague Raya Jalabi reports for the Financial Times that Hezbollah is under diplomatic pressure, which I assume means pressure from Iran, to de-escalate. But, she continues, no one knows Hezbollah's red lines. Meanwhile, Israelis are fleeing from the north in anticipation of a second front opening. None of this came through in President Biden's speech last night. Biden said laudatory things about the importance of resisting both Islamophobia here at home following the murder of six-year-old uh, Wadea al-Fayyum and appropriately dwelled on it, appropriately presenting it as a social cancer on the level of anti-Semitism. But I was more taken by his primacist rhetoric, the way he slipped into the mode that, as I wrote earlier this year, tells itself the world is a grenade and America the pin. We are the essential nation, he said, before properly quoting Madeleine Albright in calling the United States the indispensable nation. American leadership, Biden insisted, is what holds the world together. Does this look to you like America is holding the world together? And that's uh, where Spencer leaves it. Uh, go click out, go check out his piece if you haven't already. On that note, that's it for us this weekend. Uh, as always, I want to thank you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And thanks to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially paid foreign exchanges subscribers who make this newsletter possible. Until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.